Eye in the Hills of Happy Valley, Oregon. Welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground and mortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is edited and adapted from Horatio Spafford, who was a songwriter living in the 1800s and must have had moments when he thought that living for God was no easy task. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea, billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet those Trials should come, let the last assurance of blessed control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part by the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump's sound resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live in Jordan, if above me shall roll. No pang shall be mine, for the death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. My guest today is Robert Lee Pruitt II. He's a national and internationally recognized leadership trainer and motivational speaker. He's also the director of spiritual life coaching for InterVisions, owned by New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Ayana Venzant. And Robert is the author of several books, including It Is Well With My Soul, Watching Daddy Live. So, Robert, did you recognize my opening reading there? <laughs> It was spot on. So, needless to say, the the, the ever present energy of my father showed up as a wonderful smile. <laughs> nice, and I think poor Horatio. Yeah. I said his name wrong. I'm going to go for Horatio oh, Spafford, right? Yes, I think I said Spafford. Give that guy no, the right name, Spafford. Yeah, no, you Spafford. <laughs> yeah, and it took. It was interesting. I, you know, my father. That was the song and the hymn that he would sing almost every Sunday. And it, it's anybody that knows Bishop Robert Lee Pruitt II associates him with that song. And, you know, it wasn't something that he would necessarily sing himself. Don't get me wrong. He would sing it, but he wasn't somebody that would call himself, a, you know, um, I don't know, prolific singer. But there was something about that song and his own life's journey that just became a part of how he lived his life and, you know, and it's recognizable and attached to him. And it wasn't until about maybe 10 years, 10, 12 years ago, I was on a service trip and the gentleman that was driving the bus for us passed the book along and it was entitled, well, it was about Horatio Spafford. And I was like, how perfect is that? He said, the book is yours. And at the point that you find that you're complete, my only request is that you pass it on to whoever you're led to pass it on to. And that's where I got the history on that song. And he, you know, in the opening you said he must have gone through some stuff. That is really predicated on him losing financial wealth and a child dying because of illness. 
and then sending his wife and daughters from New York overseas only for the ship they were on to sink, killing both of his daughters. His wife was the only survivor. He flies over, comes back on the way back on a boat, ironically. Uh, The captain says this is the area where the ship went down that has captured your daughters, spirits, or souls. And he said, no, my daughters aren't captured. Their spirits are with God. And it was said that he went back to his stateroom after that and penned. It, it was a journal. So this was his journal entry and that his granddaughter ultimately turned those lyrics into a song. Because after they got back to New York, found out that all of his money had been depleted, and then his wife died of uh, some sickness or illness. So he had gone through a significant experience, and I want to say this was all within about three years. How does a man survive that in three years' time? You know, we've, we've, I, I know people who have some tremendous experiences where I question my faith and question my resolve. And, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a little easier to go through our own thing, no matter how tumultuous it may be, when listening to somebody else's experience. We go, I don't know that I could do that. <laughs> like, mine was horrific, but to do that or experience that. And we there are so many examples throughout the world where People have tremendous life and death experiences. And so that one is is rather significant. (laughs) That man sounds pretty fabulous. And as well as your own pop, reading here, he's African Methodist Episcopal Bishop, a bishop. And he was also... Yeah, and that's amazing. So he was out there at the church in in Washington, D.C. for all those years, and he directed the efforts that led to the restoration of the historic downtown property. What a fantastic legacy you come from. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, if you include that legacy, you got to also include, you know, there's, there's, there's one verse that I love. It says, if I'm to boast, let me boast about my weaknesses. So a lot of times when I hear mention of a legacy, I want to make sure that people understand there's also some unattractive stuff that also is a part of the legacy. And it doesn't mean that it denigrates the experience, but for me, it's part of how the legacy has materialized, right? You got to take what we call the good and the bad and pretty and ugly or however you want to frame it. And all of that is the legacy, but he was a phenomenal, phenomenal individual. Absolutely. And same with my mom. She was a phenomenal orator. She still is. Uh, my father passed in 97. My mom is still living. And, you know, she's a, a teacher. So what I've been able to derive from their genes has been, um, I'm grateful for it. Yeah, you're very fortunate to have two strong parents, two strong parents that you admire greatly. And also, you had quite a strong connection with your father. Did you find friends of yours growing up had that luxury as well? Uh, having strong connections with their parents? Or yeah, yeah, with their parents, yeah. and especially with the father. That's really fantastic. Not all men have that openness to really embracing dad. And it seems like you really did. Yeah, I, I didn't... 
I didn't have another option, meaning there wasn't any there wasn't a comparison view. So, uh, you know, people would say, is your son always that loving or is it just because, you know, you all are in public? They're like, no, (laughs) this is how he is. So, you know, we would hug and kiss or smile and. And I never shied away as a teenager. You know, I never needed my parents to leave me alone. I, I just, that was just not my come from. So even though we had some challenges and, you know, a lot of that was absolutely necessary for who I developed into in healthy ways, um, you know, there was, there was always a foundational piece where there was a respect and an admiration that was reciprocal. Um, and then as I got older, you know, that changes the nature of the relationship. So that was great. Um, and then towards the end of his physical life, that's when there was, I, I think, an even richer experience um, and some sharing and some healing and some clearing that took place in, you know, the better part of 92 days. Um, but even before that, a year or two before that, there was still a richness. Uh, that exceeded anything prior. So, yeah, I had friends that mirrored that. I mean, I could go down the litany of males who I know spoke or speak highly of their fathers just because of their connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely very, very special. Those last days of your dad's life, that was the detailed journal that led up to your book, It Is Well, With My yeah. Soul Watching Daddy Live. Was it painful for you to recall all of those details, the ups and downs, the doctor assessments, and keep such a detailed journal and share that with everyone? No. Here's why. I made a huge distinction when I was writing that between recalling and reliving. So to relive takes me back to the experience and brings forward all the corresponding feelings and emotions. Um, To recall is from a place of healing. So I look back with gratitude and appreciation for all that was and all that is the result of that experience. So, no, it was it was my therapy, because at that point, well, when my father called me that November, so he, it was November of 96 when I got a call and he transitioned on the 10th of February. So it literally was 92 days from the day he called to the day I got the final call saying, you know, your father's passed. And I remember in that process going, really, God, this is what we're doing? Because I was unemployed. I'd had contractual gig, and the funding ran out for it. And so there wasn't anything. So I was on I was unemployment, and my car needed all kinds of repair. So unemployment, paying for rent life experiences plus the car and then traveling from Annapolis, Maryland to Washington, D.C., which was only about 20, 25 miles, but it was 25 miles each way every day, you know, multiple times in a day. It was an incredible journey, and I had recently divorced, so I was going through all of that and finding, finding well, discovering how to speak my emotional truth. I feel tired. I feel annoyed. You know, I really don't feel like driving to D.C. and being okay with the experience of expressing it and then the choice to honor what I shared, right? And that's what the journaling was for. I needed to be mindful of how I was feeling. So it wasn't I'm going to sit down and journal this and I'm going to turn it into a book. My father watched me 
used the journal and said to me, I'm telling you now, you need to turn that journal into a book because it's going to support somebody. And here's the title, Watching Daddy Die. And I said, well, got it. I'll sit with that. But I can tell you right now, that last part ain't going to be it because I'm not watching you die. I'm watching you live. So that's why it's crossed out so that it offers his truth and request and then my understanding of the overarching experience so that word die is still in there with the line through and then the carrot that says to live. So it was easy for me to turn the journal into a typewritten document because I had already gone through it. So I was complete. I never went back to the journal. It wasn't a day where I went back to see what I had written or, you know, it just there wasn't any need. Every day I closed that journal, I was complete. It was on to the next moment. So I can talk about it in great detail. And while I may well up and shed tears, the tears are because I recognize where I am, you know, and the lessons. They're tears of gratitude. They're never tears associated with sadness. Because for me, my father energetically is still here. And that's something I've always owned, (laughs) you know, in as much as, you know, the disciples asked Jesus, you know, what are we supposed to do now that you've ascended? And he's like, do you get that I'm always with you? So I can't imagine being, you know, a Christian through and through and not own that part of our human experience. So I never have to go. I wish Pops was here. I recognize the minute I think about him, we're present. In as much as if you and I were the best of friends and really connected, and I went, you know, I wonder what Linda's doing. You go, I wonder what Robert's doing. And then we call, and you go, I was just thinking about you. It's the exact same frequency for me. So it's really easy to uh, enjoy the experience of recalling those those moments, and uh, you know, and and being mindful of where I am today as a result. Yeah, that's a healthy, amazingly fantastic and human way to look at everything and to feel. And I think people might have an easier experience with this if they understood that even though that person is no longer walking the earth, they're still with us energetically, spiritually, all of that. And I love that you refer to yourself as a human spirit that has successfully completed life's graduate class in terminal (laughs) illness. (laughs) Oh, my God, yeah, because that's all I can think of. Like, you know, it, this is, everybody is talking about, I have PhDs, and, and really the foundational piece for that was going, well, what qualifies me to write this book? I don't have PhD behind my name. You know, I, I don't have clinical studies and trials. And it was, no, no, I've graduated. And as a result, that is my level of expertise and proficiency. And so, you know, one of the things I've always asked people when they would have conversations about, you know, degrees, I was like, well, who gave out the first degree? Jesus. (laughs) Right. Like, you know, so in the human form, right, like aside from Jesus, if somebody said I'm opening up this school or I'm conferring this upon you, it's in written form and it says that you've completed it. You know, I, I you have been tested. So somebody knew enough about their skill set and their knowledge and their teaching skills to confer upon somebody a degree. So if they could do that, then there's always a moment where somebody is in some kind of self-conferring experience. And that's what that 
that's what's not in the book, but that's where that came from. Like, damn it, I've got enough experience that I can do this. <laughs> and let's keep it moving because somebody else is going to need to hear this. Amen to that. And what I love that is in the book is how much you love the Quiet Storm radio show and how that was really, that R&B music just flowed and that really helped ease your soul during these 92 days. Yeah, the, uh, it, 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 and what I can tell you now is that it was the love of just, re- and we're talking, I'm talking 1970s, because, you know, I'm 52, so I'm talking about the Delphonics. And I'm talking about LTD, and I'm talking about the Commodores, and I'm talking about Earth, Wind, and Fire. And, you know, and I'm going into, you know, Nancy Wilson. And there's, you know, that energy was wonderful. I had to become mindful that not every song was going to serve my greatest and highest good. So songs that were about hurt and pain and wallowing in the muck and the mire and I can't live without you, I had to leave those alone. <laughs> You just turn the uh, dial, right? Yes. Well, yeah, exactly. And and it was I was glad that I was able to understand that that was exacerbating the pain. What I wanted was soothing, calming music that brought joy. And the quiet storm for me was always about romantic music, which always connected me to some young lady. So it was bringing up the nostalgia of the joy of life, right? While in yeah. the midst of this turmoil, recognizing yet it's still life. <laughs> yeah, Nat King right. Cole, he brings the joy. There you go. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So I ended up with I ended up with the uh, the smooth jazz version of the Quiet Storm. Um, so there were there was Kenny G and Boney James, right, and Kirk Kirk Whalem, um, and that was the experience that supported me and 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 moving through because I love music. And I have a, a natural connection to rhythms. So, yeah, that was big for me. Nice. So you've received some awards here. I'm going to read these off. There was the uh, 2010 STEM Champion Congressional Award for Pioneering Innovations that Transform Schools. Wow. There's the Empowering Teachers and Designers for the 21st Century Learning and the Preparing Youth for STEM Ambassadors and Global Leaders in a Digital Age. Do you have a, a wall in your house that houses all these wards, or my goodness? No, you, the <laughs> irony is they're all in a box. Oh, why? Well, it, it, I, it's never been, I don't need them up. I see. How about, <laughs> what, the, what, what, does that make sense? Like, I don't, yeah. and, and I don't, and I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not interested in sounding like an articulate speaker. We're just having conversation talk, right? Mm-hmm. I don't not need them up, right? Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> right. I just, I didn't put them in the box because, oh, I, I don't want them on the walls. It was like, well, we moved and we just, I don't know where I want them. So I'm going to keep them in the box until there's a place that calls for them. So I imagine someday that mm-hmm. I'll pull them out, but I love being able to go in the back and come across them. And then pull them out, and then I share them with my sons. I have twin boys that are 15, and every once in a while, my wife and I will sit down, and, you know, it gives her insight into my life, you know, that transcends our first meeting a decade ago. So, you know, it is a wonderful experience, but it isn't something that I need to have on the wall ever. I've never been that. My parents were never that. Um, you know, I used to have a, 
a DJ company. I had a four-hour mix show on WAMO in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And people were like, hold up, you're doing the radio show. We see that you're doing the after party for Luther Vandross and Prince and all of these big names, and you just don't seem phased. And I'm like, because I'm not my results. My results give me feedback regarding what it is I want to create or achieve in my life. And so I'm grateful as I move through it, and I'm happy to share. So you can ask me. I'm happy to go through, oh, here's, you know, what I received if you ask, but it's not something that I wear on my sleeve any more than it's something I feel the need to hide. They're just in a box because we didn't know what we wanted to do with the rooms that we had. <laughs> so it'll find its way wherever it needs yeah. to be, whenever it is, and it's That's the right. discovery of it. So I'm kind of guessing if I came to your house, I wouldn't see a big frame picture of you and Oprah on the wall either then, huh? Yeah, no, <laughs> Okay, no, but I got to ask, no. you were yeah. on the Oprah show. What the heck was that like? Yeah, uh, well, it, it, again, it was a wonderful honor, and it was me supporting a nine-year-old who had created a nonprofit organization because he was tired of seeing uh, people, particularly members of his family, shot and killed, and his father was in jail. And so his mom supported his desire to turn a conversation around healing into um, kids against violence. And somehow I showed up in on her radar screen and she reached out and said, you know, would you be willing to mentor my son? I'm going, uh, I need him to mentor me because <laughs> of how he's showing up. And I met that sincerely. Mm-hmm. And because they had in 2000, the millennial dreamers Academy or something, they were dealing with, young children from around the globe who were making incredible strides in the world. And because they reached out to Leon uh, to, you know, come and be on the show, he turned around and said, would you appear on the show? And so humbling experience, um, because it wasn't something that I needed or was asking for. Um, but I certainly wasn't going to say no to the opportunity to talk about him in a way that nobody else could. Uh, so that's what that experience was for me. Um, and yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, my, my life has taken me through being at the White House starting at age five. We were there with our choir every single Christmas for about seven consecutive years where other people had never even driven past the White House, let alone been inside and had dinner and, and you know, I've been around kings and presidents, and it just, it was never something that our family wore on our sleeves. We would talk about it in what we would call a proper context, but, you know, it just was commonplace. So, for me, that experience showed up and said, okay, thank you for letting me know how I'm showing up in the world, that energetically I would connect on that level, and then let's keep it moving. So, even now, with you. How I'm here with you on your show is because of some way, you know, my information book made it to you, um, you know, and that had you reach out to me. And so I'm great. This means as much as Oprah. Well, that is very kind. Everybody has their own gifts. So, you know, love never compares. That's what jacks us up. It never compares. And when we're dealing with grief and transition, we're, we're comparing. 
we're comparing what I'm feeling now to what it was. And that's natural, and that's part of those grief cycles that we talk about, which never are linear. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure some people actually go through them step by step. But most of the time, it, you know, it's an iterative process. You move forward, then you go back to something. And all of a sudden you move forward and you feel peace, and then you go back because grief shows up or shock and horror shows up. So, you know, it is recognizing that if I'm operating out of love and gratitude is a form of love, then it, I don't have an attachment to a thing. And that, for me, is the beauty of gratitude. It releases me. I'll speak for me. Um, it releases me from everything. So the gratitude for being in the 92-day experience with my father released me from the need to want to have it be different. Don't get me wrong. I had some days where I was like, okay, guy, you're getting on my nerves. One minute he's sick and almost out the door and then the next minute he's well now what is that what is that like pick one you know so that was my conversation with god but even that was a release process because i made it okay to have conversations that were authentic for me without comparing it to what i would think you know somebody that believes in a higher power should do and especially a bishop's son right there's all of these wonderful dynamics around how we should behave and look in the world um so in short fashion, not comparing makes it easy for me to authentically say being on the call with you right now is as meaningful as being on the show in 2000 with Oprah or, you know, playing the way I do with Iyanla or, you know, because I don't, I don't see you all as something I have to get to. I see us as being on the same frequency, sharing our gifts. And I believe you because I've read you that you've said that you really believe everyone has talents and skills and abilities and experiences and that you really think that they should all be shared with the world. And I'm not surprised that you're the director of the spiritual life coaching for uh, Dr. Van Zant because of who she is and her character and books I've read from her. Tell me briefly, we just have about two minutes left here. Can you tell yeah. me what you do at Intervisions? Well, the beautiful thing is I've stepped down as the director because it's a leadership role. My whole thing is, you know, I was in that for five years. I've been faculty for 12 and that directorship position for five. And if it's leadership, you develop leaders. So we set something up for new people to come through, and I think the energy needs to shift. So I get to teach facilitation for people that want to go out and be facilitators that are part of the Spiritual Life Coaching Program. Um, I have other things I get to do. That's just the one that I, I choose to do and I love to do. And, uh, and it just hones people's ability to be in group settings and to understand what facilitation is and does and recognize that it's a natural byproduct of what we do every day, just like coaching. I think you got to get on with somebody, and they're the coach. I keep telling people, you're the coach. You got yourself to call me. So whatever that was, you coached yourself to it, and you'll coach yourself through this. I'm just the neutral observer. Right, that can he hear, see, feel what you can, and offer you insight. And that's also what we do uh, through the institute as faculty. We offer metaphysical insights and tools and skills and understanding of spiritual laws. And you believe focus is transformational, and change your focus, and change happens. Yes, and what I love is that's my wife's addition to my life because in this season of my life, vision has always been my life's work. The focus is very different. So I actually wear contacts 
because I have, you know, what is it? I'm nearsighted, which means I have challenges seeing far. And I love now that I have a different connection to it, which is understanding that I have a myopic view of the world because of some experiences that I've gone to through and some beliefs that say I just need to be able to see what's around me and what's close because the lookout there won't allow me to see the danger that's nearby. And once I got clear on that and started a process to release, you know, that stuff, because I've already said this is my last year wearing contacts and I'm not getting laser surgery. So, you know, that's part of that understanding for me. You've been listening to KKPZ 1330 AM The Truth. Thank you so much to my guest, Robert Lee Pruitt II. And until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other. <laughs>